to all your favorite music is probably where we take a thigh there we go already screwed up the first word <laughs> try it again ah that's the best thank you this is the best to keep it in <laughs> welcome welcome to all your favorite music is probably where we take a themed dive into popular songs and unearth the connections like wild mushrooms i'm your host mark montgomery french music culture writer film composer youtuber and mushroom enthusiast and today's theme is all your favorite music is probably created against the artist's will and my guest today is actor, playwright, and voice and performance coach, S.J. Harrison. Welcome. Thank you, Mark. I'm very happy to be here today. Yay. So what I mean created against the artist's will, when we grew up, we listened to a lot of musicians that were self-contained artists. They wrote, they arranged, they produced, sometimes put it out on their own label. They don't like being told what to do. They don't like being coerced into something. And they tend to get very antsy. But of course, behind all of this is record labels, producers, management who want a hit, you know, right. that hookers and blow money doesn't grow on trees, so they're always trying to gouge the artist. <laughs> and sometimes, so this is why musicians are actually doing what they do. You've just told us <laughs> for hookers and blow money. That really was this- about yes, yes. Surprise, <laughs> dropping nuggets of information early on in the episode. So. One of the songs we're going to talk about were, they were hits, but they were not intended to come out or be released or be formed in the way that they were. For example, I'm sure you know of Owner of a Lonely Heart by Yes, which took oh, the yes. weirdest way to get to where it was. So Trevor Rabin, uh, who's now a film composer, was a South African guitar player, and he came to America slash uh, London to try to get a deal. And the original demo for Owner of a Lonely Heart was on his tape. He ended up working with the musicians that were basically a reformulated yes, but they weren't planning to work on that song. His demo was playing. Trevor Horn was producer, heard it and went, I love the riff. We should make this into a better version of the song. And the band was like, eh, I don't know. At one point, Trevor Horn supposedly was rolling around on the ground in the studio, pulling at their legs, begging them to work on the song. So now that he's humiliated himself, uh, they start working. But Trevor Horn says, I hate the lyrics. I want you to change them. Trevor Rabin, the songwriter, refused for seven months to touch the lyrics. Eventually, Trevor Horn rewrote some. John Anderson rewrote some. No one really thought it was going to be a hit. But Trevor Horn ended up being the biggest hit they ever had. <laughs> so I guess he knew a little something, something. So that was a big yes. <laughs> yes. But um bum. But um bum. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> we are going to listen to Owner of a Lonely Heart by Yes.
was owner of a lonely heart by yes their only number one record unsurprisingly they didn't really make short concise songs they make lovely long progressive rock songs funny enough that drum beat at the beginning of the song that sort of drums like it's falling down the stairs mm. is a sample by of a song called cool is back which was written by Cool and the Gang. So, yes. Wow. It was performed by a different band, but deep and probably uncredited and probably unmonetized is a Cool and the Gang song at the beginning of that, which is odd because I want to talk about Cool and the Gang. Cool and the Gang used to be a jazz group and then in the 70s became a funk group and then in the late 70s, early 80s became a very smoothed out R&B group. But at one point, they weren't making hits in the early 70s. And there was a big dance song called Soul Makosa. If you heard that Mama Say, Mama Sa, Mama Kusa Oh, part, yes. Right. Michael Jackson stole that from Soul Makosa. And by stole, mean he had to pay. <laughs> <laughs> right. So Cool and the Gang's label's like, you should write a song like Soul Makosa. And we can, you can get the producer of Soul Makosa to help you. They're like, nah, dude, we got this. They didn't want to do anything, but they wanted to shut up their label. So they went an, into a studio and one day wrote and recorded Jungle Boogie in one take. As soon as you say Jungle Boogie, it plays in my head. <laughs> it, it's just one of those songs for me. You know what I mean? Like yeah. suddenly you've ignited this stereo system in my head when you say that, that phrase. That's awesome. It's also a song that when you say it, people go, hmm, I'm not sure. No, you've heard Jungle Boogie or you haven't. It's not one of those subtle songs. It's like, it's immediate. Uh, so we're going to play the song In Your Head Right Now, SJ, which Uh-oh. is Jungle Boogie by Cool and the Gang. just heard the American number one single by Cool and the Gang called Jungle Boogie, a song they did not want to make and just did it to shut up the label. But it got them a hit, so I guess everybody was happy from that that one decision. Although, I very few songs I can think of were recorded in one take. I think there were hits. I think um, the Beatles' Twist and Shout 
with one take because John Lennon's voice was at its end that day. Ah. That first album was all recorded in one day. Please, please me. And I think John Lennon had one take in him. And he was like, that's it, guys. We're done. And it's amazing how limitations can help us to move forward as artists, but in really maybe short bursts like that. I agree. I, I mean, you were probably aware of this. With computer-aided recording, you can record an infinite amount of tracks, right. which means it's an infinite amount of information to have to mix and cut. And sometimes musicians say, there's so many tracks, I, I'm here all the time. I can't focus on you know, the melody or the drums or, is the song any good? I know I can balance and mix the song to eternity, but back with every song we've talked about so far had a maximum of maybe 16 tracks. And that's mm-hmm. it, right? They did it with a pop song. They got in and out. They were sitting there for hours knowing that, well, I can, I can tinker tomorrow. I can tinker day after that. Just like, no, this is it. I got a day. Studio time's expensive. Let's just do this. Oh, this is an interesting point, though, because, again, as an artist, I have really strong opinions about creating structures, which by their very nature are somewhat limiting, within which creativity can grow. If the sky's the limit, you can do whatever you want. It can actually be harder to focus something more intricate and unique. And so I'm wondering, Mark, what you think about the expansion and almost endless possibilities of modern music. Do you think that that has a detrimental effect on the work itself? I think it does. When I think about the songs that made me stop and listen, there were ones that were pushing technology and songwriting for it, right? So I think about the Beatles' Eye on the Walrus and how much sound collage was going. I think about Public Enemy, all that sound collage, and they were really pushing what could be done. With a limit, within a limitation. Within a limitation. You know, uh, I mean, they couldn't sing. They didn't have all the money for the hot equipment. Even Wu-Tang Clan was famously done with low equipment in a horrible studio with limited time. And that's a, they've never repeated it. They've, they've tried. They've, they spent more money. But no, no Wu-Tang album has ever gotten the, the vibe or the feeling or the, the fandom that you know, nine guys in a horribly under, <laughs> underheated studio made. And when I think about even non-pop music, you can, you could literally write a song in which every bar is a little bit longer or a little bit shorter. You can cut things into this micro amounts of sound. So you could do a lot more with sound, but you know, the amount of people who are just into four, four time just blows my mind. <laughs> <laughs> you know, guys, it's simple now. You, you could, you could make it five, four, you can make it six with a click, but no, I think there should be more limitations. So this actually goes to the point of the idea that artists that, that we're talking about today are creating something they don't entirely want to create or that they don't want to create it in the way they're being asked to. And so far you've mentioned hits. So now because of how my mind works, I want to extrapolate from that the idea that those were limitations imposed on them that they didn't like, that they bucked against, and yet they had hits. So I'm wondering if that kind of grace under pressure aspect may be fruitful at least some of the time. I think so. Um, there's a book by Ed Catmull, who was uh, either president or CEO of Pixar, called Creativity Incorporated. And somebody asked him, you know, what's the secret of Pixar? He's like, well, I have uh, the money guys who would like every film to be $50 million. 
the average Pixar film is 150, by the way. And I have creatives who would spend an eternity designing every character and make every film a billion dollars. And he said that friction between the two sides is where all the great Pixar films came from. Mm. You know, so that's what. So I, I totally agree. It's, it's the friction that helps generate some of these some of these songs, such as I'm a big fan of Talk Talk. They have a very short catalog, very small. I love all of their albums. They were working on the Color of Spring, and once again, management said, "I don't hear a single." So Mark Hollis decides to do the most obvious thing: what is popular. And let me just take pieces from it. So at that time, much like recently, Running Up That Hill was popular at the time, the first time. He pulled the drum pattern kind of from that. He played uh, the Booker T, the MG song, Green Onions, more or less over the top. And rather quickly put together Life Is What You Make It, which is a beautiful song. And he had no intention of writing it. He was like, here, are we done? Here's your hit. (laughs) And it was a number, top 20 hit in seven countries. So everybody got what they wanted. So here we are going to listen to Life is What You Make It by Talk Talk. was Life is What You Make It from the band Talk Talk. So while we were on the break, SJ, please repeat for the audience what you told me. Well, it reminds me what you had just said about this song and here it is, are we done yet? It reminds me a little bit of my best friend Danusha Lamaris's poem, Small Kindnesses, that has gone viral around the world and been posted by some well-known people, etc., etc., When she wrote it, she thought, well, this is a sweet thing. And, you know, she can spend a very long time on some of her poems, but this is just one of those things that just came to her and she put it out there. And much to her surprise, without expecting that it was going to really take off, it absolutely was the right sentiment for the moment. And it impacted people greatly, particularly during the pandemic. So I think it's one of those things where we as artists, don't actually know. We can't expect to know what will reach people. We have to just do. I completely agree. I mean, it's, I think sometimes non-artists don't realize that 
art isn't a product, it's a process. Oh, yes. You know, and that you can monetize anything you want to, but if your job is creating, that is the end result. And of course, we all would like to eat tomorrow, but there's no way. If, if anybody knew how to make hits, that's all anybody would make. Right. <laughs> right. You know, we found the secret. That's all it is. Wear this. Make this dance move. We have a hit. And it's, it's almost always a surprise, even if you are super talented and, and do everything right. Because, you know, it, with your friend, it's like it was the right poem at the right time. What about those works of art? And you're going to laugh that I'm calling Star Trek a work of art. But that were not, say, this is an example, popular at the time and then just became huge which in a way happened with Star Trek. It wasn't particularly, it didn't take off at the time. And then later on just became this enormous concept that impacted how people think about a whole lot of things. I think that, and this is having, you know, been a part of science fiction, a person who loved science fiction from a long time and loved anime, I think uh, it's been hard for the mainstream culture to market and present a non-mainstream thought in enough mm-hmm. time to gauge whether it is successful or not. I remember in the last 10 years when the, the, the National Association of Broadcasters had a meeting and they were worried because we're now talking about zero television households, which is the way they were talking about people who, ha- who streamed their shows and didn't watch it on linear television. And they were panicking until they realized this is an opportunity for maybe shows that would not succeed on a major network could actually have a life and you can talk to these people and still advertise and still get fandom back. So I I think that Star Trek was ahead of its time by at least 10 years. And But you're right, a lot of the themes, the many themes they discuss, they finally found a, a culture in which to live in. Ah, oh, that's beautiful, actually. They finally found a culture in which to live in. It also makes me aware of how much I feel the quality of programming has just gone up. There's so much that I think is excellent that I want to watch. That was not always true no, by no. any means. Now it's more like, that's great. When do I have time? What network is it on? What streamer? I've never heard of that streamer. Can I get that streamer? <laughs> <laughs> I agree. And so to, to, uh, to flip it, and this will come up again after this, but disco was like this strange vibe that took over the 70s. And, <laughs> and I mean, I was here to, to witness it, and it was still very strange. But in terms of how prevalent it was in people wanted to go dance, everybody wanted to dance, everybody wanted to dance to disco music. Not everybody wanted to make disco music. Marvin Gaye hated disco music. He said it had no substance. But also in 76, didn't have a current hit. And also worse, Dana Ross had just had Love Hangover, a disco song that was massive. So Motown's like, Marvin, can you make me a disco hit? So he decides to load up and make a parody of a disco hit. He decides to write a song about a guy who goes to a club and doesn't want to dance because <laughs> he's shy. 
<laughs> and he brings That's people great. he brings people into the studio to pretend to be at a club. People are saying, hi, how you doing? And people, the sounds of people clanking their glasses together. And eventually the song ends up with the guys eventually dancing. And that was got to give it up. That was basically Marvin's going, being petty and going, you think you got what you want, but I got the last laugh. Or did he? Because it was a massive number one hit. (laughs) But then does he lose from having a massive hit? That's the question. Um, Considering what happened to him eight years later, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Um, For those who do not know, uh, Marvin Gaye's life was full of drama. And uh, after his last hit in 82, which was uh, Sexual Healing, he was... Uh, shot to death by his father on April Fool's 1984. He was defending his mother from his father, who uh, had a history of abuse, and he stood up to him, and the elder gay shot him. So Marvin was definitely about to have some authority issues uh, mm-hmm. going through his life. Um, this is a man who, by the way, on his last tour, brought with him his spiritual advisor and his coke dealer and kept them in different backstage rooms and would run back and forth. See, this is the great thing about me being in some ways, except with some niche passions of mine, a music ignoramus in general, because it allows you to really talk about some of the history that a lot of people may know, but that I don't know. So that's really rich. That's awesome. And with that, let's get into Marvin Gaye's Got to Give It Up. That was Marvin Gaye's Got to Give It Up, the song he wrote to be petulant and end up being a a classic. This is Marvin Gaye's pettiness. He was divorcing his wife, Anna Gordy, who was, I believe, the sister of Barry Gordy, who owned Motown. His way of dealing with the alimony was, I will give you half of the money from the next album I release. Everybody's happy because it's coming off a big hit. His next album was a double record set all about his divorce, all about how what she did to him, how uh, he has to pay lawyer's fees. And he called it here, my dear. And oh. the cover is him like a Roman statue. The whole it's, it's a wonderful album. It's insane. Wow. 
It also bombed. It also compl- no one was ready but for it. But that's terrible. It is. It's, it's mean. It's terrible if she has to go through that. It's mean. You would hope that she would actually get some money out of it. She got nothing. Oh, nothing. God. Nothing. It was a great album, though. I mean, uh, uh, if you ever want to listen to someone else's uh, relationship crumble and the one person is clearly not owning up to anything on his side, this is the album for you. (laughs) I'm not sure why I'd want to spend time with that. I might have spent some time with that in life. And... uh... (laughs) Because <laughs> um, it's got a good beat and you can dance to it. Uh, <laughs> uh, speaking of things going the wrong way, did you ever see The Exorcist? Okay, this, I know that you're having my partner, Paul Jennings, on yes. coming up. Yes. Paul is horrified by so much of my popular cultural ignorance. Mm-hmm. And I have seen clips, of course but I am one of those people who have not seen The Exorcist. And it's it's something he will comment on. Not I, necessarily on your show, but I just had to say that. I will say this. I think if there is a film that is well known for possibly scaring actual liquid out of your body, you get a pass to not want to see that film. Okay. Yes, I'm not a... I don't watch horror, by the way. No. I just don't. I saw The Thing, the 1982 version of The Thing, with friends in the room, with the windows open during daytime, and that film has scarred me for life. I could draw from memory the most horrific transformation scenes because they were so well done. They were so realistic. They still got into my psyche, and they've never left. I mean, I kind of want to go into a therapist and he or she can say, show me on this creature where the thing touched you. You know, it's just wonderful, beautiful film. Never want to see it again. The Exorcist in Clips is terrifying. I can only imagine if I was Catholic how much it would actually actually get into my soul. So much of it looks realistic and it's, ugh. So it's okay, you haven't seen that. I have a, I have a friend. <laughs> I have a friend. I have a guest on one of, I will not, I will not out this person, but one of my guests has never seen Star Wars. We had a lifelong conversation after the interview saying, please don't tell anyone <laughs> you haven't seen Star Wars. There was no place to hide. Um, that, I can see that. Yes. The Exorcist is a scary film that has almost no music. And in one sequence, they use a clip from Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells. Now, Tubular Bells, it's, I believe, uh, it's one album with two very long songs with different parts on it. Some are happy, some are fun, some are creepy. Well, they found the creepiest four minutes and clipped it out with some other sections, and they did it the most ham-fisted way possible. The transitions are poor, there's a big hum going through it, like someone didn't bother to set the volume or the, the bias correct. And the American label decided to put this out as a single. Didn't tell Mike Oldfield. Just cut it together, Frankensteined it, and put it on radio. Radio loved it anyway. Again, it's the 70s, and it was a a number seven hit in America. My Goldfield, though, heard about it and went, this will not happen in the UK where I'm from. And he released his own mix of the single. He actually re-recorded some pieces to make it fit like a regular song. But the crazy Frankenstein Lumpen version was a hit in my country. And that's what we're going to play. The un <laughs> the unavailable anywhere but the U.S. version of Tubular Bell 7-inch by Mike Oldfield.
And that was the U.S. version of Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells, a single that Mike Oldfield refused to release in England. Actually, he did his own version. It went to number 31. Who's to say what was better? Well, I know it was better to Mike Oldfield. Um, but, gee, it's not like SJ America doesn't have a history of taking British things and ruining them. <laughs> yes, and that's my cue to complain about. Now, I can think of one that's apparently been done brilliantly. I didn't, though, watch the American version, and that's The Office. I really love the English version, but I understand that The Office was great and that it was interpreted culturally differently in such a way that really worked. But, for example, recently, Ghosts. Ghosts, <laughs> the English series, for the most part, is great. There's some episodes where I'm like, meh, but basically it's a good series. We yes. really enjoyed it. And then we see that they're coming out with an American version. And I'm thinking, why? It's not as if we don't understand the same language. I mean, I expect it's about money, as usual, but I still find it really frustrating. Um, I find it odd that American TV, American sitcoms are basically, let's redo what worked in England and then hire Canadian talent. That's American sitcoms. <laughs> we'll have American writers just do... Tw the one thing we do well, we'll take an idea and we'll beat it into the ground for 22 episodes a season for as many as we can sell. Unlike the English, who have some sort of limit of, well, we can only be funny for six episodes. Let's stop here. There's a series called Episodes, mm -hmm. and I happen to train with Stephen Mangan, who is the main male lead in that. Matt LeBlanc plays himself in it, and it is all about that. It is all about a BAFTA a winning, that's British Association Film and Television, BAFTA award-winning series that then gets taken up by Hollywood, and this couple who've written it go to Hollywood and what happens. And it's all about that process of why would you be changing it to that, and this is now unrecognizable. <laughs> it's like Michael Jackson's face, the TV show. Yes, it's <laughs> unrecognizable. I did see the first season. I forgot about that. It's a wonderful show, and it's... But so many... I didn't realize um, as a kid, Sanford and Son was a British show. It was Steptoe and Son and which I'd never seen. Oh my gosh, yes, of course. And uh, yet so many were just like, let's just take this and do it here. Also in the 80s, we were taking French comedies and making them into American comedies, which sounds totally horrible on paper and was totally horrible, mostly uh, in real life. Okay, so I was going to say that I started watching Call My Agent and was not super enamored with it. It's a French comedy. And then they did a British version of that, 10%, which I think is absolutely brilliant. <laughs> the title's <And> funnier. <laughs> the humor is just, the humor is really fine-tuned in 10%. So I don't know what the French would think of that, but I much prefer <laughs> the British version. <laughs> Maybe if, I'm just biased when it comes to certain products. You know, if, if you're from France and want to comment on this podcast, let us know <laughs> what we should be doing. I want to talk about the chairman of the board, a.k.a. Frank Sinatra. Frank has had a very long, had a very, had, Frank had a very long career. And Frank was sometimes given songs by his, his partners that he did not like. He hated Strangers in the Night. Let me give you a quote of what he called Strangers in the Night. 
a piece of shit. That's the nice one. He also called it, quote, the worst fucking song that I have ever heard, unquote. And when he would sing it after it became a hit, he would berate the audience. He actually told the orchestra leader if he played the tune one more time, he would, quote, stick that violin bow up with the sun don't shine. He said this on stage. Oh, my God. Frank had a lot of anger issues, I think, in the 60s. He really hated the Beatles. He hated all of that ilk. Mm. If you watch any television from 64 on, the Beatles were a punchline to represent all modern rock bands. The older musicians, older uh, comedians, Jack Benny would make, it'd be a throwaway joke, ah, the Beatles, and people would laugh. Until Sgt. Pepper, and then all that ceased. And all of a sudden, at the same time, they realized they became irrelevant. Ta-da! Uh, <laughs> and so Fringed in the Night was what Frank thought was beneath him. Although, honestly, I kind of like it, as did Everybody on the Planet, as it was a number one single in both the UK and the US, and became really his signature song, I think, until either My Way or New York, New York. People like Frank singing it, and we're going to hear Frank sing it, Strangers in the Night. Woohoo! Strangers in the night Exchanging glances Wandering in the night What were the chances We'd be sharing love Before the night was through Something in your eyes Was so inviting Something in your smile was so exciting something in my heart told me I must have you strangers in the night two lonely people we were strangers in the night up to the moment when we said our first hello little did we know Love was just a glance away, a warm embracing dance away And ever since that night, we've been together, lovers at first sight In love forever And we are back from hearing Frank Sinatra sing Strangers in the Night And I was making a comment about how Alec Baldwin, who I enjoy as an actor as an actor, did not want to play Jack Donaghy on 30 Rock. And SJ, you were talking about what may be the cause of that. Yeah, so you were also mentioning that he had turned down a follow-up film to... The, some Jack Clancy film, Clear and Present Danger, I think. Yeah, in, in favor of being in a streetcar named Desire on Broadway, which is a really emblematic role. Marlon Brando played that role. So it's understandable why he might do that. But I also was saying that I think, from my observation, he's of a personality type that does not want to be controlled and can take the idea of doing something expected as being controlled. And there can be a self-destructiveness in that particular mindset. Just putting that out there. That's I don't know anything particular about Alec Baldwin, 
But that's what comes to me, just in seeing him, having seen him. There's an ego, there's a belligerence to him, would yes. you say? And I mean, I, I've enjoyed many, many, many of his performances, most of which were in projects that did not elevate him, honestly. And I think 30 Rock was probably the one time people saw him in a role continually that he was fantastic in. As I understand it, Lorne Michaels said, can you just come be in the pilot or the first couple of episodes? Then, well, how about just the first season? And then after he started winning awards. Ah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But that's a great approach for that personality type. That's a great way to work with someone like that. Also the, oh, would it be so nice if you did this? And then he can feel like he's doing them a favor and maybe he's actually being supportive. That's the other side of that. But he's not being pushed into something yes. long-term without his feeling like he's doing it himself. I think we just learned something. <laughs> well, I, um, I love analyzing and take it all with a bucket of salt, but that's what I see. <laughs> yes. All right. I want to discuss John Mellencamp, at the time, John Cougar Mellencamp. And John Cougar Mellencamp had a song called Jack and Diane. You may have heard of it. And in the song, Jack is described as a football star. That was not the original line. He was an African-American. And this is 1982. And he had not had any major hits. So his label said, hold on, does he have to be an African-American? And John Mellencamp explained, well, the song's kind of about race relations. And if I don't call him an African-American, the song, to me, kind of falls apart. And they went... But can you not make him a black guy? So he decided to capitulate and make him a football star. At this point, he's thinking this song is not really working. And he kind of recorded it, and it was on kind of the, the, the pile of I don't know. And in comes Mick Ronson. For those of you that know, Mick Ronson was a wonderful guitar player. He was David Bowie's guitar player on a bunch of albums, including uh, Ziggy Stardust. And they mm. were friends because back in the day, John Mellencamp, Mick Ronson, and David Bowie all shared the same management. So Mick Ronson comes down and says, I got an idea for this bridge section. I'll put some percussion on and we'll do the whole choir of Let It Rock, Let It Roll. And that's the part of the song everybody remembers. And so Mick Ronson, who you know wasn't a part of his band, sort of helped save the song that went a different way because the label wanted to de-blackify it. Mm -hmm. And it became a number one single. So... What? That's a mixed story, as it were. It is a mixed story. it's sad, again. It's such a sad old story, isn't it? it? Yes, it is. One thing it did do, though, it made John Mellencamp refuse to ever listen to the label ever, ever, ever again. So after he had some pull and had some hits, he did a lot of things they didn't like. Like um, he used, had black people in his videos, in his band. And he'd end up recording with um, a Michelle Negadio cello. That was not a popular move at his label. It was like, well, that's a better story. Yes. Why? Why are you with this negress? And he's like, because she's talented. Get off my back. I just made you a bunch of money. Uh, so I'm going to do it. His nickname of himself is Little Bastard. Uh, <laughs> he definitely is someone he is uh, opposed to being told what to do. Uh, mm. But he generally has, uh, I think, good instincts and, and, and humane instincts with his belligerence. So I like that. And with that, let's hear John Mellencamp's Jack and Diane.
little ditty about Jack and Diane, two American kids growing up in the heartland. Jackie gonna be a football star. Diane's debutante backseat of Jackie's car. Sucking on chili dog outside taste freeze. Diane sitting on Jackie's lap, got his hands between her knees. Jackie say, hey Diane, let's run off behind the shade of trees. Dribble off those Bobby Brooks, let me do what I please. Say, oh yeah, life goes on long after the thrill of living is gone. Say, oh yeah, life goes on. So that was. John Mellencamp, at the time, John Cougar Mellencamp. By the way, his name was given to him. He found out on the first album cover he was called John Cougar Mellencamp. Oh, my God. Sorry, sorry. He was called John Cougar. He was John Cougar for years, had Jack and Diane, and after that, his next album was called John Cougar Mellencamp. He was like, I made you a hit. I'm taking back my name. Oh, but he knew that was happening. He was John Mellencamp till the first album release. Uh, and I'm, then he didn't know he was going to be John Cougar. It was nope, like, oh, no. hello, who's that? Exactly. Exactly oh, like that. That's and, awful. And only, a name is every the name is your name. Yeah. If you're going to change it for artistic reasons, that has to be the name you've chosen. Yes. And, and so... Uh, only on, I think, its fifth or sixth album, I think that was uh, after American Fool, was when he, the, the Aha album, in which he called himself John Cougar Mellencamp and eventually dropped the Cougar, but it took another, you know, four or five albums. Uh, so, yeah, labels, what, management, what are you going to do? So, I want to go into Pink Floyd. I love, I love this. If you're listening to this, you don't see that Mark is kind of going, <laughs> he's swaying slightly. So he says, I want to go into, and there's a little sway, Pink Floyd. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, I actually listened to a bunch of early Pink Floyd lately, and it's amazing how they went from, let's just make sounds to, you know, let's tell a conceptual story. And I love The Wall. Pink Floyd, The Wall is one of my favorite films. It may be because when I saw it, I was, I don't know, 12, 13, 14. Mm-hmm. But I definitely liked the concept of school as being a, a fascist place to indoctrinate children and terrorize them. My, my schooling wasn't that bad, but I saw how it could have been. Oh, yeah. Have you seen the movie If? Oh, I'm just going to put that um, out there. I've seen clips of If. I'm going to play you. Yeah. Half hour. I've seen clips. I know of Malcolm McDowell. I have not seen all of If. I saw it ages ago and can't really remember. But whenever people are talking about The Wall, I think of If. Mm, okay. I will now go see If. Well, after this episode. Uh, so, again, it's 1979. It, the whole concept, if you have not listened to The Wall... Roger Waters' mother wanted to protect him from the bad outside world, and there was a world war happening, and sort of created some mental barriers he's probably still trying to process. So their producer, Bob Ezrin, says, you know what, this song you have, another brick in the wall, there's three sections, they all will take different sounds, why don't we take one section and put it to a disco beat? And the rest of the band was like, ew, really? (laughs) 
it might make a single. It's like, we're Pink Floyd. We don't have singles. So they're basically like, do what you want. Now, at this point, the song has one verse and one chorus. Mm-hmm. So he goes, well, if it's going to be a single. I'm going to need a second verse. So he just loops the first verse. The whole drum beat's a loop, right? But there's no one to sing it. So he goes, I got an idea. Children's choir. So he goes to, I hope I say it right, Islington? Yes, I Thank used you. to live very. I used to live in, in Islington, actually. Okay, well, you know, at the, one point, you know where the Green School is, or was. Yes, right. That choir. He hired those children to sing the second verse. So, so brilliant! So it he, is so brilliant. It right, and he puts it all together and shows the band. They're like, I think this works. They were they were laughing at him until he did it, and then it was like, Yeah, this is going to be what it is. Um, and funny, they ended up releasing a uh, an EP called A Collection of Great Dance Songs, which is funny because they only have the one, <laughs> but that's on there. So let's hear the song they didn't think was going to work, Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall, Part 2. That was a number one hit in the U.S. and the U.K. from Pink Floyd called Another Brick in the Wall, Part 2. For the record, there are three of them. Uh, the other two, nowhere near as danceable. So, you know, again, none of these artists were really trying to sell out as they were trying to politically handle some issues. You know, management had a position. Their label had a position. Uh, they didn't want to get dropped. And I don't think any of them really tried to um, just do something for the money. And I tried to not cover artists who um, clearly have running out of ideas. (laughs) Just said, well, this will look good on a poster, so we're going to do this. Uh, I was mentioning a band who who I saw back in the day. I actually saw the Red Hot Chili Peppers in 88 with Primus opening. And that was like so much bass in my face. It was amazing. Wasn't that when they were really just starting? They were really just starting. It was literally... I remember that. The only time uh, the original four toured uh, the Bay Area. Because after that, the uh, original guitar player OD'd like six weeks after. And they were very funky then, and now they seem to be on this funk light routine where uh, I was saying, uh, the the early peppers were like beef brisket, and current peppers are like beef jerky. And hey... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Some people like beef jerky. 
I don't need that many albums of beef jerky. Just necessary saying. on a long road trip when there's nothing else to hand. <laughs> so you're saying you like them out of desperation. Excellent. You are a playwright. Yes. So SJ, thank you for coming on to my podcast. Is there anything of yours you'd like to promote? If so now is the time. Absolutely. My podcast. And Mark Montgomery French is actually interviewed in the first episode. My podcast is On the Breath, The Power of Voice in the World. Intimate conversations with people talking about their most empowered and their least empowered experiences with voice. And it's inspirational, personal, hopefully inspiring. And you can find that on Spotify. We're hosted on Podbean and other major sources of hosting. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and you will enjoy that. I mean, just listen to her voice. Don't you want to hear another half hour, 45 minutes of that? I do. Oh, thank so you. You're welcome. So, hey, everybody, thanks for checking out season two of my podcast. Come back next week and we will unveil another fun tune. And if you want to follow me on all media, I have a new link. It's beacons, that's B E A C O N S dot A I slash. MM French. That's where you can find all the links to me on social without having to remember all of my links on social. So that's beacons.ai slash MM French. Original music courtesy of Spiky Blimp. Thank you very much, and I will see you next time. <laughs>